you guys have your Bibles, open them up with me. You're ready for Exodus 27 tonight. A couple of announcements before we start in Exodus. Hey, the youth group went last week to a um, combined... No, they went to a, uh, a meeting, basically, for all of the youth groups. And I think there's four or five different Calvary Chapel youth groups that are getting together for summer camp. And I don't know how many of your kids or you guys were involved in a summer camp that Tommy and Destiny did a couple years ago. We went up to Idaho. We went for like five days and it, it was a great time. It was a great um, building point for our youth group. It was a bonding time. The youth group grew in those days and, and it was just, it was, it was awesome the turnout and the response that we had to this camp. So um, we were able to do that one relatively inexpensive, although it was a long drive. We rented vehicles and we drove all the way um, north of Bo- Boise, Idaho, but it was well worth it when it was said and done. Um, so we have another opportunity coming up this summer in June for youth camp um, with some of the same churches, and, and this time American Fort Calvary Chapel is um, kind of heading it up. And so anyways, it's a week-long camp, and it's in Wanship. And Wanship, that's the same place we went for youth camp, Right. Winter camp. That's that's where we went to winter camp, where Jackie broke down. That was one ship, right? Yeah, yeah. We rubbed that one in a little bit, um, but that that's campground. So a summer camp there, and the cost is a little high. And and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's one ship, if it's just the way it is. But it's a five day camp, and so it's all the food and lodging for five nights. And so the price is a little over three hundred dollars a camper. So that's expensive. Ouch, right? So. Um, want to let you know now, um, it, it's huge. It's, as you guys know, for women's retreats, men's retreats, for everything that we do, it's, it's huge in our spiritual development. It's important for us to send our teenagers, our young people. Um, you guys could say, ouch, I got three teenagers that are ready to go. So that's a times three for me. So we'll, we'll start budgeting that way and planning and, uh, and being ready so that we can be a part. But so it's, um, you know, the cost is going to range Probably around 325 a kid is where it's going to be. So we'll do fundraisers. We'll um, try to bring that cost down for the group, maybe for kids that need help to get involved with the fundraiser. Well, at some point, we'll ask everybody if they want to help with scholarships. And, um, you know, and then that's also the, the, the leaders got to pay that price as well to send them. So, but it's a great opportunity. This camp is, and camps can be a little spendy, but well, 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 well worth it. And then March... Some of the guys I mentioned to you, the pastor's conference, we'll be going to the pastor's conference in March 6th, 7th, and 8th. I think that's it. Ladies' study, when do you guys resume? They haven't decided yet. So no ladies' study coming up, um, but they will let you know. All right. You guys have your Bibles. You can open them up to Exodus 27. So the, this section, really, of where we've been, we've been seeing the, the construction. I'll, I'll not write the second, but I'm going to want Apple TV at some point to, to throw up some pictures. And um, we, we've been um, kind of seeing where Moses goes up on a mountain. And as Moses goes up on the mountain, God begins to speak to him and gives him the blueprints for the tabernacle that the children of Israel, as they wandered for 40 years, would would construct. It was meant to be mobile. It was meant to be able to tear down and pick up as God would lead them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke in the day. As they wandered through the wilderness, they came to the point of judgment where God said, okay, this generation will not enter the promised land. And And for 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness and their shoes and their sandals, God preserved their sandals, didn't wear. And everybody at the point that was over 20 years old and older, that generation, God basically waited for every one of them to die. And then the next generation actually crossed over the Jordan River. It was an 11 day journey from Egypt to the promised land. And it took the nation of Israel 40 years. When they got into the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, the tent was constructed, and God continued to dwell with His people in this thing that we call the Ark or the, the, the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle consisted of three parts, and we're going to get into those a little bit tonight. We'll see the construction of those. And, and, this, and then in the Holy of Holies, in the third part, was to be kept this... Um, and in the Holy of Holies, God said that His Shekinah glory would dwell. And, and, and so the history of the tabernacle is it traveled in tents and sheets and, and poles would go and construct it. And every time they tore it, they would tear it down and move it and put it back up. 
And, and, and you guys know the, the story, right? It comes all the way to the history of King David. And King David one day is in his palace, and, and it's, it's, it's peacetime, and he's looking out his window, and he sees this, this temporary tent, the same one that Moses built in the wilderness, that God is giving him the instructions to as we're studying here in Exodus. Now again, in context, Moses is up on the mountain, God is speaking these words to him, giving him the blueprints, the plans for this tabernacle. They're going to go down and construct it exactly. Well, David is looking at that same tabernacle that they constructed with the Ark of the Covenant in it. And he says, hey, I'm living in this palace and God is living in tents. I'm going to build a house for God. And you guys know the story. What's that? (laughs) And so um, Nathan, the prophet, comes to King David and, and, and when, when, well, first of all, King David called Nathan to him and he said, he said, Nathan, he said, I'm so excited. He said, I got a plan. I'm going to build God a temple, a house. And Nathan got all excited and he said, oh, King David, he said, do all that is in your heart. And then Nathan left. And when Nathan got home, God knocked on his door and said, you Nathan. Hey, by the way, I, I didn't tell you to tell the king to build me a, a house. I didn't ask King David to build me a house. Now, guess what you get to do, Nathan? You get to go back to the king and tell the king that, that you made a mistake and that, that he's not to build me a house. And so Nathan had to go back by word of the Lord. He goes back to David and he says to David, he says, David, I'm sorry. I was excited in my heart, basically, is the skinny of it. When you told me that the king wanted to do something spiritual and holy, I was excited for you and I just reacted, but I didn't hear from the Lord. And God spoke to me and you're not allowed to build him a temple because your hands are too bloody. But God is going to build you. And then we get that amazing prophecy and I think it's somewhere around Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we get that amazing prophecy that God is going to build David a house. He said, God said, David, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And what is that house that God built for David? Is that somebody upon the, the line of David would sit upon the throne of David all the way to Jesus and Messiah. And to this day, Jesus is one of Jesus' titles as son of David as in fulfillment of that promise. And so, so God did allow King David to gather all the materials to, to build the temple. And then who built the first temple? Actual temple? Nobody's here? Solomon, David's son. David's son through Bathsheba. And David had prepared and, and had most of the, the stuff had been gathering in his kingdom and his ministry and his time of reign. And then when he passed it on to his son, his son continued and Solomon built the first real temple. But this is the, the model. And when they built a real temple, they built it with a similar model of these three phases of an outer court, an inner place, and then a holy of holies, or the holy place, and then the holy of holies. But the, the, the purpose and the picture, now there's tons of pictures as we've gone through this. And, and, and what we see all the way through this is the same thing we see all the way through the Old Testament, which is that one church answer that's always right. Jesus. We, we, we always see Jesus. We see Jesus all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the tabernacle, and every aspect of building it and of constructing it and entering it and entering the outer courts and then the inner place and then the Holy of Holies. It's an entire picture of New Testament living, of living in the Spirit. It's a picture of Jesus. But I want to share with you guys really the, the intent that's been God's heart really from the beginning of human history. And I think it's important that we... Um, understand and that we have this this view of God. One of the things that's foundational to our Christianity is this one truth. God is good. God is good. Somebody wants to say all the time. God is good all the time. But it's it's better than just a little bracelet that we wear. WWJD and God is good all the time and frog until something happens or whatever. But that the foundation that God is good. And, and in God's goodness, Old Testament and New Testament, sometimes we in our mind as we read the old and we read the new, we, we can form an idea or a picture that God kind of had two different systems. And, and we have dispensations. Before they lived under a different dispensation. When Jesus died on the cross, we now live under the dispensation of grace. We're saved by grace. They weren't saved by grace in the Old Testament. Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And, and there was, you had to follow the law and you had to sacrifice lambs. And, and on this side we live, but we, we look at those different dispensations. And actually there's multiple dispensations that we can follow through human history. But just looking at those two main before Old and New Testament, we can also paint a picture of God that, that has two faces. 
But one of the pictures that we always try to paint, one of the things we always try to bring out as we study through the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is you see God's heart hasn't changed. You know what God's heart was for Adam and Eve and for the Abraham and for Joseph and for Moses and for the people and the children of Israel? It was fellowship. His heart was, you know what he told the people in early in the, in the Bible? The, the number one rule? What was God's number one rule way back in the beginning of human history in the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what's our number one commandment and rule today? How's God's heart changed? It hasn't. Because Jesus said the number one commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And in the very Shema, the very um, hero Israel, the very listen Israel, listen up, the very mantra of Israel to this day, which is the great Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And, 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 and that hasn't changed. And, and really what God did in building the tabernacle, this is what I'm getting at. I kind of spent a long time to get to this, but God wants to be with us. God, God wants to dwell among us. God, God wants to, you know, we, we, we don't see God. And the angels marvel. And the angels say, man, these people have such faith. And they, they, they are listening and they just can't figure it out. The Bible even says in Ephesians that we, we train or we teach the angels. And the angels are watching us. And we're setting an example for the angels. Because sometimes they just marvel. They, they travel in and out of the presence of God. And yet you and I, we, we don't get to see God. And yet we exercise in our life a life of faith. And of, of living, but God's heart for you and for me is God wants to dwell among us people. He wants to be their God. He wants fellowship. He wants to bring us into that holy of holies, that inner place of intimacy, that 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 where He can He can dwell with us, where His presence was. So this first model that that we're going to see, this tabernacle, it had this progression that we walked through to get into this place where God's glory, the Shekinah, it's called the Shekinah glory would actually dwell. Now, if God's heart for us here on earth is to dwell with us, is fellowship. And then in heaven, where God is going to, His will is going to be done, right? What's the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And how's it end? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will is done on earth. So God's going to lay out exactly what his heart is for you and me. And it's going to be executed. It's going to be planned out. It's going to happen in heaven. Would you agree? And so what is God's will and what do we do? So we look at, um, we look at Revelation. You guys can stay in Exodus. And, and you know what? I did this last week and I read large portions of this as we went through this last time. But again, it's for the same idea Listen to what God says in Revelation and what it's going to be like in heaven. Then I saw John, holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So this tabernacle, this heart that we're studying now is in heaven. God has taken it to heaven. He's duplicated it in heaven with the purpose of what? Dwelling with us. Being with us. You know what the Bible says about a temple and a tabernacle as far as the with one that we build in heaven? It's not going to exist. It says it's going to go on. If we continue to read, it's going to go on and say there was no temple in it. Why is there no temple? What was the purpose of the temple or the tabernacle? It was a place where we could go and dwell with God. It was a place where God's glory would, would, would dwell and remain and where we could go and visit the Shekinah glory of God. But the Shekinah glory of God and God's presence is all throughout heaven and through the entire heaven. And, and God will be with us and we will be His people and He will be our God. And so that's God's eternal heart for us. Amen? So chapter um, 27. Now, listen, as we go through this, as you guys know, we kind of lumbered through it last week a little bit and some of the details. So I tried to lay it out a little bit different this week um, in that I'm just going to, you guys can read it. I, I would encourage you that you should read it. You should read through it. Um, let God speak to you through it. But I'm not going to cover every verse as we go through it. I went through and tried to highlight some of the important things that we want to bring out. So in 27, with this idea that God is with us, 
Let's let's go ahead and throw up that uh, Apple TV now, if we can. Actually, yeah, give me one second. Go ahead, Chad. Chad throw that up if you would. Yeah, sorry guys, you have to see that. That's the you're you're still saved, right? That's what comes up until I take over. There it is. Okay, so that is um basically the the layout, you know, and then we don't know exactly what it looked like, you know, but this is the the basic idea of the three parts. We have here the outer courts. And then we have, as you go into the holy place, the actual tabernacle itself. Um, it had a, had an outer court, which is outside, and then inside is called the holy place. And then when you go in the back, back, this very small part in the back, 15 by whatever it was, um, is the holy of holies where God's Shekinah glory would dwell. The tabernacle that Solomon built was, um, again, built off of that reference or that layout and obviously opulent and big, but basically it had a holy place. The one that Solomon built was, was huge. And the, the, the veil of the curtain, the veil of the temple was 18 inches thick. And that's the one that rent from top to bottom. This one would have not been, this one would have been a humble curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And then we go through and God is going to lay out the different... Um, things. Let's look at verse number one. It says, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. An altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. Bronze in the Bible is metal is a type of judgment. So make a note there. Whenever you see bronze, it's a metal that represents judgment. And he says, you shall make its horns and its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. In verse 3, you shall make it, make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make it. In verse 4, you shall make it for a, a gate grate for it, a network of bronze on the net work. You shall make four bronze rings as its four corners, and you shall put under it the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway in the air. Hey, so the last, um, again, so he's talking about the, the, the altar of burnt offerings. So you have um, these altars these on the outside there where, you know, it's called the brazen altar there. Bring me into the holy place, past the brazen altar and to the holy place. Um, the, but every everything has so much um, symbolism and part of Jesus. Now this is um, a, a symbol of judgment and that as you go through this we see that um, the courtyard or again if you look at this as a model of Christian living today it really represents our Christian walk and, and so many of these things this brazen altar we have to be judged and we have to have our sins forgiven and, and laid at the altar and so we come and, and as we come into the outer courts there we're in the outside you know the, that we're, we're um, we get saved. We ask Jesus in our heart. We become born again. And we, we make our way through the, the blood of Jesus forgives us. And we go into the holy place. And what do you find in the holy place? Well, when you first get into that first place, you find instruments, the table of showbread of, of bread and the, the, t- the altar of incense and different things that, that represent service and serving. And we, 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 after we get saved, we're growing in Christ. We begin to serve. We begin to reach out. God begins to use us. And then ultimately we end up in, in where the desired place is for each one of our lives and our, in our walk is in the Holy of Holies. And what happens inside the Holy of Holies? Intimacy, right? Remember Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha were there and, and the, the, the chores were needing to be done. And so Martha was cleaning and doing dishes and cooking and preparing for everybody. And, and Mary was inside and she was just sitting at the feet of Jesus and in intimacy and worshiping him and taking in every word that he said. And Martha came and she said, Lord, tell my sister there's work to be done and get out here and help me do these dishes. And the Lord said, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better place in, in that place of intimacy. And again, according to God's will of, of intimacy is what God really desires for us. And, and, and as we enter this way, really our life is born from the back forward. We don't get to start in the back and go forward. But as we go in, we meet Jesus, we grow in Jesus, we serve, we, we, we experience intimacy in that holy place. Then from that intimacy, 
we come back to service, the service place, the middle tent, and then back out to reaching out. And, and that, that life, is as the Spirit fills us, and it comes forward, it, it changes other people's lives, it spills over into other people's lives. You know, the very essence of Jesus, what was Jesus? one of Jesus' names? What does it say in Matthew? It says that you, you shall have a son, and his name shall be called, eventually it says Jesus, but before that his name shall be called Emmanuel in Matthew. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. And so, you know, you see this, this heart of God with us, even in Jesus, and all the way through. So let's, let's jump down to verse number 9. So we're still in the court of the tabernacle. We're in this outer part. You guys see where we are? Haven't actually entered in yet. Let's look at verse 12. And it says, And along the width of the court on the west side shall hang... 50 cubits with the 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hanging of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. Verse 16, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. And it shall have four pillars and four sockets. So, um, we, we have all the way through here again, you guys, we have the different um, I am's of Jesus that are listed. So we have that light, the, that brazen altar that's on fire and it's light as you come in. What is, how does that remind you of Jesus in an I am statement? Anybody? I am what? I am the light of the world. Did Jesus not say he was the light of the world? John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And there's those seven famous I am statements. And then we come to um, the table of showbread, and we see the bread. How does that remind us of Jesus in an I am statement? Jesus said, I am the, I am the bread of life. I am the, you know, and, the, and that I am the bread. And we see Jesus again in that. And then the, the interesting thing is that in the outer courts, it was very important that as they built this, that they only built it with one door. And what did Jesus say in, in John as, as one of the I am statements? He said, I am the door. And no man comes in but by me. The thief and a robber comes around the outside. But again, we come in through one door, and that's Jesus. We don't come in by works. We don't meet with the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord said, I'll meet with you on the mercy seat by grace through Jesus. One door, one entrance. We come in through Jesus Christ by his blood. And then what's interesting is there's, there's three colors that are represented, blue and purple and scarlet. Now, immediately you can think of ways that those tie into Jesus. Blue, scripturally, is, is oftentimes a picture of or a um, symbol of heaven, of eternity, because the skies, and God painted the skies and the heavens blue. Um, purple is always a color of kingship or of, um, um, you know, purple is God's favorite color. You guys know that, right? That's why our church is purple. Because if he wants to do something really well, he does it in purple. And then scarlet, we think of obviously that, that scarlet red is always a reminder of the blood of Jesus. But just in those three colors, um, blue representing Jesus' humanity or his, the fact that Jesus became a man. And then as Jesus became a man in that, um, the purple represents his divinity or his, his, his divine nature. He was fully man, fully divine. And then the um, red on the bottom there rec- represents his sacrifice. Another way we see these three colors, again, that, that Jesus was both priest, king, and a prophet. And historically, that the blue was a, was a priestly color. What we're going to study in a minute, and I'll show you a picture of, is the linen ephod that the high priest wore was to be blue in color. And blue was always a picture of the priesthood, and the priests wore blue ephods. So Jesus, we see the blue, purple, and scarlet. Jesus was a, was a priest with blue. In the purple, he was a king. And, and the scarlet, he was a prophet. And red represents prophecy or the prophet. And Jesus represents all of those. What, what's interesting is that in all this picture in the New Testament, Jesus said that we're all called to be priests and kings. That, that we're a royal priesthood. And that this, this office of the priesthood that, that was there in the Old Testament has died. And God has given us the mantle to, to be the priests and kings. And then we get on to verse number 20, and it says, And you shall command the children of Israel, and they shall bring pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is beyond the testimony. 
Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening till morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children. So, actually, this one doesn't show there a little better picture of what it would have looked like inside. What do you have when you first... Now, so they have the holy place and then the holy of holies. So you see there, even in this picture, you get the, the, the red, the blue, and the purple in the, in the tapestry. Also would have been the same in the outer courts. So this one actually pictures color-wises, right? Exactly how it laid out. That's pretty close. Um, you walk in, and even with the poles and the, the rings, the brass rings and the pillars... Um, the three pillars and the four brass rings. and But on the left there, what do you see when you first walk in? If you walked in and looked to your left, you'd see what? What is that candle thing there called? The menorah. candle. It's a menorah, right? It's got eight, eight things. It's what we think about when we think about Hanukkah. And then on the right is the table of showbread. And so, um, and then on the, the last thing you see there as you walk in, that little altar thing there, that's the altar of incense. And incense in the Bible is a picture of prayer. And that, that when we pray, it's, it's an incense that goes up to the Lord in the altar of incense. But the first thing he's talking about now is that candelabra, somebody called it, or the menorah that's there. And so that was something that the priests were to be in charge of. Oh, there's a picture of the priest with his linen ephod on. He's in blue, as the priest would be in blue. And he's got his... Um, breastplate on with the 12 stones we'll read about in a minute so um just a little bit of history on on hanukkah someone asked me about hanukkah recently and it was my son i think and uh i told him you know i'm not really sure exactly um you know and so so i had to look it up and and study it a little bit but um, how they study. And I knew it had to do with the menorah and you light one day. I knew a few things, but I didn't have a good enough answer really to share with them as far as Hanukkah and how they celebrate. But what, what fits right here and kind of what happens in that is that it was, it was necessary that that thing stayed lit. And so um, where Hanukkah comes from, you guys heard of the Maccabees? And the Maccabees is a, it was a revolt that, that we've talked about. And um, I've even heard President Benjamin Netanyahu say recently the spirit of the Maccabees on this revolt. But basically, under um, Alexander the Great, around 165 years before Christ, 165 B.C., um, Jerusalem was overthrown by the Seleucid Empire, which was the Greeks, under Antiochus um, Epiphanes. And so um, Antiochus Epiphanes was a, a general assigned by Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, as you guys know, is the, the general who, who conquered all of the world. Conquered all of the world around that time. And, and Alexander the Great died young. He's the one who was quoted as saying that he was, he was depressed because there was, there was nowhere left in the world to conquer. He had conquered everything. And so one of his um, generals that was sent over the region of Israel was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a pagan... Um, Seleucid Greek um, pagan who was arrogant. He was blasphemous and he was in charge. And in the temple, in Solomon's temple, he went in and he defiled the temple and desecrated it. He offered, had the audacity to offer a pig as sacrifice inside the holy place. And as you guys know, the, 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 uh, a, a pig is unclean and there's no more um, way to defile the temple than that. And, and, and that he becomes, and we talk about him as a type of Antichrist in biblical prophecy, a historical character, Antiochus Epiphany, true story, and, and that abomination which causes desolation that Daniel spoke of, which ultimately is fulfilled in the seven-year tribulation period by Antichrist, where Antichrist will go in and do the same thing. Antichrist will go into the Jewish temple, and he will offer um, pagan sacrifices and basically set himself up as deity inside the temple and demand that he be worshipped. And so he will cause the abomination of desolation. But we get a foreshadowing or another fulfillment, a near fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation in 165 BC by this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was, was um, commissioned by Alexander the Great, who ruled Judea at that time. There was a, there was a gentleman by the name of Metanyahu, not to be confused with Netanyahu, who has deep history in Israel and his brothers served and fought in the armies and wars and 
But this guy was by the name of Metanyahu. And Metanyahu was the leader of what we know today as the Maccabean revol- Revolt. And so basically what, they, what happened is they had enough. They, they got tired of, of Antiochus Epiphany defiling the temple. And against unsurmountable odds, they armed up and they went and they attacked. And they took the Jewish temple back. And when they took the temple back, they drove out Antiochus Epiphany and the Seleucid army, the Greeks, they were expelled. They got it back. And when they went back, they lit the first light of the, of the menorah. And after they lit it, they realized that they didn't have enough oil to do all eight days, as was, you know, supposed to be done. And the oil that, that, that to be done correctly takes eight days to prepare the oil and ritually prepare the oil that they would need for the lamps. And so rather than say, well, we don't have time to do it God's way, let's just put the oil in and keep this thing burning. Because of the integrity, I feel, because of the integrity of their heart to do it the right way and God's way, what, it, what ended up happening is the, the candle, the, the wax or the oil they had for one day lasted all eight days. And that's where they, they get the tradition of Hanukkah or a feast of dedication, or as it's called in the, in the New Testament, the Feast of Lights that was celebrated. What's interesting that I, I don't know that I, I didn't realize this, but I guess I didn't. Um, Jesus actually celebrated what we call today Hanukkah. Because it says in one of the Gospels that in Jerusalem, they, they, that him and the disciples went for the Feast of Dedication. And, and they went and they celebrated the Feast of Dedication in, in Jerusalem. And, and the Feast of Dedication is what we call today Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. They're all three the same exact thing. And so Jesus would have observed some form of Hanukkah where they light one candle each of the eight nights and then on the eighth night and as far as how they celebrate and I think there's presence involved. We have our menorah back there that we brought from Israel. That's our Christian menorah though because it has the Star of David and then the Christian fish which has some... That one only has seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So what do they do on the eighth day? Or is it, or is it always seven? Isn't it the eight days of Hanukkah? <laughs> no, it's the 12 days of Christmas. Don't trip. All right. I don't know. I have to look. Uh, okay, yeah. So, um, oh, maybe, I don't know. We're holier than they are, so we have seven. Um, so... That's the story of, of Hanukkah and, um, you know, President Obama being the, the gem that he is. He went to, to light the, the menorah candles and you light one every night of Hanukkah. And he went on the first night and lit all eight. Is, is he that blasphemous? Is he that stupid? Or is he just purposely do it on purpose to, to just defy and, and be? I mean, is there not one Jewish person on his staff? that knows you don't light them all eight at once and that's disrespectful to the Jewish people that you're trying to supposedly honor by, by honoring Hanukkah and, and, and lighting the, the candles in the White House. But he went ahead and lit them all at once and nobody bothered to tell him he was doing it wrong. <clears throat> all right, let's look at uh, verse no, or chapter 28. So in chapter 28, basically we get, until verse 29, we get the garments of the priesthood. So you guys have to bear with me here a minute. Because I got all these pictures I don't want you to see. There we go. Um, this is um, basically the, the garment that the high priest would wear. So, so much, so much interesting in this whole concept. And again, you know, the problem that, that a Jew has today, and, and of course they have a way around it, but the reality is as you go through these, these things that we're going through today, and, and there's so much that has to do with dealing with sin. And, and, and all of these issues of what they had to do in daily sacrifices, and we'll get into in a minute, all of the daily sacrifices and all of the things that the priests would do to perform rites to seek God for forgiveness of sin. And the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, and they know this. And, and without the animal sacrifices in the temple, how do you have forgiveness of sin? According to the Jewish law, you don't. So, so a Jew today has to, they have to ignore it. And of course they've, They've, they've danced around it and they've, they've rationalized why they, you know, they can practice Judaism without a temple. But the reality is, as you go through this, you, you cannot practice Judaism. You cannot 
be obedient to what God's called you to without animal sacrifices. And animal sacrifices can't be done without a temple, without a tabernacle, without a place where they're to be done right. And so, you know, you can ask your Jewish friends when you talk to them, how do you reconcile not doing animal sacrifices? And they'll, they'll have a pat answer that they'll be fine with at the end of the day that they've been using for the last 2,000 years. But the truth is there's just, <coughs> there's just a problem in it, right? <coughs> so let's look at verse 15. You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Those are those colors. And fine woven linen, you should make it. And so the, the idea that, that this was to be of judgment, and as the priest would go in and he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people once a year, that, that the blood of Jesus Christ and that Jesus covers our sin... But, but the idea that there was brass, and so much of it was brass, which was a, an idea of judgment. And the linen ephod was even in, in the heart and the spirit of judgment. Just again, speaking to this fact that, that our sins are, are, are needing to be forgiven. That there needs to be a price that pays for our sin. And sin is a big deal. And it, and it affects God's people. And just the sincerity of, of, of dealing with the sin. So, so we get the breastplate. And, and just basically in a... In a nutshell, there's the, the 12 different um, jewels that are on there. They're all the same. Where do you find those 12 jewels, anybody? Trivia 101. I know I do trivia like 151 every night because that's all I do is ask you as much questions that put you on the spot. But where do we see those 12 jewels again? When are they going to reappear? They're in the breastplate here in the ephod. And then again, we're going to see them in the book of Revelation. Somewhere towards the end of the book of Revelation... Aren't we going to see them in the description of new heaven? And in new heaven, there's 12 gates. And each, each gate is a different pearl. And each gate is a different name written upon it. And, and each one of these 12 pearls, God says, represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And so for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, there, there's a different um, stone which represents God's, God's different tribes, the 12 tribes. And for the 12 gates that are going to be in heaven, each one is going to be represented by several things. A stone which is going to represent one of the tribes of Israel. And also there's going to be a name on every gate of the 12, the third thing, 12 disciples. Is Peter going to have a gate in heaven with his name on it? Yes. The answer is yes. The Bible says that there will be 12 names written on the gates of heaven in Revelation, the 12 disciples, one of the different names on all the gates. So who, who will be the 12th disciples name that will be listed? Will it be Judas? Probably not. Will it be Matthias, who they chose in, in Acts chapter 3? Probably not. I imagine it would be Paul, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel, represented by the 12 stones here on the breastplate of the linen ephod. Let's look at this interesting verse number 30, this interesting section on the breastplate. It says, And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart, and when he goes in before the Lord, so Aaron shall bow the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What, what's interesting to me is, is really cool is that, that it's over God's heart. It's over the priest's heart. And then, and then again, that God, like we talked about last Sunday, God likes you. Like, he doesn't just love you. He, he actually likes you. God, God likes who you are. He cares about you. He says that he tells us in the word that he's compassion and he thinks good thoughts towards us and that he wears his, us on his heart and that God does have a compassion represented there that the priests were to be written upon their hearts. But it talks about these two stones that they're to wear um, in, his, in his shirt pocket or in a pocket and they were the Urim and the Thummim. That the translation is it's there in your margin. If you look at the margin in your Bible, if you have a have a, a margin Bible, it'll say light and perfection. So these two stones of light and perfection. Now, what the umum and the thurum was that the high priest would keep is a mystery. And, and I, I think the truth is, and different scholars will say different things, but I think they agree on the idea that we really don't know. We've never discovered them. We don't know where they are today. We're not exactly sure how they function because the Bible is not super clear. Only history and tradition tells us what these two f functions of, were of the umum and the thummim. One of the things is, is that there was, um, some will say that in the, in the breastplate of the high priest, that, that the different stones, the 12 stones that the high priest would wear, 
would, would light. And these umim and thermum, one would be a black stone and one would be a light stone. And one would kind of light up and that the stones in the breastplate would light up. And it was almost like God would, re- they, that the high priest would receive a text message through the, the, the stones in the breastplate and each stone representing a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And, you know, and then and, and that God could like text the high priest through the way these stones would work. Um, I don't know. I've heard good Bible teachers teach that and say that. But one of the things is they represent God's people. And, and what's cool is that if God did speak through this breastplate somehow, that, that it's, it's very true that God speaks. And one of the ways that God speaks to us, which fits in with all of this, is through his people. So the umum and the thermum, um, one way or another, they were a way of divining God's will. Now, how they worked or how they basically, the, it would have almost been like shaking one of those uh, eight balls. And then, and then waiting for it to come up through the fog in this little triangle, and you could ask it a question. And, and the high priest would reach into his shirt and, or into his pouch, and he would pull out either one of these two stones sporadically, and it was supposed to give a yes or no answer to a question um, that, that, that we would ask. And it was supposed to be a way, the umum and the thumum, of um, casting a lot or deciding God's will. And how they worked, and again, some will say, some commentators will say that they would glow or that there would be some kind of supernatural power upon them, which wouldn't be completely far-fetched in that the, the entire, the, the, God's presence dwelt in the, Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go in the Holy of Holies once a year and, and then that God's presence was there. But even on a practical note, you know, and so, so for you and I, we, we, the number one question I think we get as Christians, as pastors all the time is, what is God's will? And that's what the question everybody wants to know. What is God's will for my life? I wish I had a black and a white stone. I'd just keep them in my pocket. And I'd shake them around and say, Lord, should I buy that lottery ticket? All right. Or, or, or Lord, should I go left or right? And, 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 it, and just knowing God's will would yet be so simple. And, and, and yet the way that God's designed it is that God is not... He doesn't want us to cast lots. He doesn't want us to reach in our pocket and flip a coin, basically is what the umim and the thurum would come down to, even if they were supernatural. And they would have uh, functioned def- definitely differently among for the high priest and had a godly function that God laid out, and here he tells them to do it. But really, as we go forward in history, they, they die, they disappear, there's no information about them. And really, it's not God's will for us to flip a coin to, to decide, right? And we see it. We see, we see, um, first example is we see Gideon cast a lot. And Gideon says, Lord, if it's your will, I'm going to put out a fleece in the morning. And the fleece would be a piece of wool or, you know, and, and he said in the morning, he said, if, if, the, if the fleece is all wet and everything around it is dry, Lord, I'll know it's your will. And he came out in the morning and the fleece was all wet and everything around it was dry. And he's like, okay, Lord, he squeezes it out. And he's like, oh, let me make sure it was your will, Lord, because it wasn't good enough. He just... It didn't work. He said, okay, tomorrow, let the fleece be dry and everything around it be wet. And sure enough, he comes out the next morning and the fleece was dry and everything around it was wet. And, and, then, and then we get the disciples who, who do something very similar. When Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and went and hung himself, in, in, in the early part of um, the church, they wanted to replace the 12th disciple. And so what did they do there? And I, well, I don't know why I can't remember, but it's Acts, early part of Acts. Is it Acts 3 or 4? 2, 3, 4, somewhere in there. They, um, they cast lots. And basically they put up two guys. And they cast lots. And the Bible says the lot fell on Matthias. And so they chose Matthias. But, but do you think the disciples in that point would have said, Hey, what about that guy, Saul? Should we throw his name in the hat and see if he pops out? They weren't thinking about Saul, right? They had no, no desire. That was way outside their thinking that Saul would be a choice. But God had already chosen who he was going to replace um, Judas with. It was the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at the time. And the disciples not knowing that, rather than seeking the Holy Spirit and trying to seek what God wanted them to say, they cast lots, which gave them a, a flip a coin type of answer. And, and it really wasn't God's desire or will for them to find God's will that way. And so they end up with Matthias. Do you guys know what ended up happening with Matthias? Me neither. <laughs> no idea. Why? He's never mentioned again. Is Paul mentioned again? Yeah, I think a few times. 
And, and, and God was already in the works of replacing Judas with Paul. And, and that's why I believe that Paul was the disciple that God chose. And the disciples messed that one up. And they cast lots. And they umum and thermum. And how do you say that again? The umum and thir- thermum. Thumum. The urum and thumum. And, and they kind of urum and thumumed it. And it thumumed it all up, right? And, and so... It's not, it's not God's will. God wants us to be led by what? By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, by revelation. You know, and then, you know, a couple things. Because people ask me, how do I know the will of God? This is what I can encourage you guys with and promise you. Um, you can't miss the will of God if you want to know it. If the word is true and you desire to know what God's will is in your life and have it lived out, you can't miss it. And that, that, that's so encouraging to me, really, honestly. And it was encouraging me as a young pastor, saying, Lord, what, what is your will? What do you want me to do? Where am I supposed to serve? What? And, and I can remember my pastor, my first pastor, he told me this. He said, you can't miss it. And I struggled with that. I, I argued with that. I, I, I battle with that. Even to this day, I can't miss it. The, the truth is you can't miss it if you want it, if you desire it, if you seek it with your whole heart. I can get in sin and get outside the will of God for my life and, and, and in essence miss it that way. Because sin will destroy my life. And when I'm not listening and when I'm not seeking God with my whole heart, even to this day, I'm, I'm sure I'm not always on the will or the, the, the direct or the best, God's first and God's perfect will for my life because of sin. But what did, what did we study again on Sunday in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen? If you seek me with all of your heart, you will what? You'll find me. Is that a promise of God? God says, if you seek Him with your whole heart, if you're really listening and you really seek God, you're going to find Him. And guess what you find Him? Guess what comes with Him? His will. His desire for your life. His plan for your life. That same sentiment that if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me is repeated multiple times in the Bible. Multiple times in the Bible. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open up, I will come in and dine with you. So Jesus is there. He's standing at the door of your heart and He's knocking. And again, you can't say, oh, I asked Jesus to come into my life and lead me and guide me and nothing happened. Because either you're a liar or the Word of God is a liar. And I'm, I'm going with you over the Word of God as far as who's lying. Because the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and He knocks. And if you open it up, He'll come in and dine with you. And if you want God's will for your life, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. It's, it's really seeking the Lord with all your heart and you'll find it. Now, how does God speak to us? And I, I, I'm making the case that God doesn't speak through flipping a coin, through the umum and the thurum, the umum and the thumum, that that's not really his best desire to speak to us through casting a lot as the disciples foolishly did. But what I find is God speaks, number one, to me through his word. He speaks through the word of God. Whenever God has clearly the most just where I, what I would call as clear as an audible voice, I've never heard an audible voice, but sometimes you, it's as if an audible voice. It's as close, it's as good as an audible voice. That's how clear God spoke to me. But it was through the Word. It was through reading something off a page that God directed me to. And, and the Holy Spirit quickening it to my heart. And God spoke to me through His Word. On a daily basis, it's being in the Word that God speaks to me through His Word. God, God speaks to me another way. God speaks to me through um, a still small voice. And through prayer and through intimacy of, of seeking God when God speaks to my heart. Another way that God speaks clearly, and I believe that God speaks to his people, and I think that the, the breastplate that the high priest wore with the 12 stones representing the 12 different tribes of, of Israel is God speaks to me through people that love him and love God. When Lydia and I got called to come to, to Tooele, we, we, were, we were involved in the church. Everything was good at the time we got called. I wasn't being kicked out, and, and I felt a call of God, and I went to my pastor, and and told him, hey, that, 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 that ministry that you just talked about, that you just thought was for Mike, is not for Mike. It's for me and Lydia. We're the ones that are supposed to go. We want to go. And then as it started to develop, people that loved Lydia, loved me, they had a peace about it. And I, could, I think of Sherry. Sherry's a, a one of our, our secretaries. She's a financial secretary at the church. She has an amazing heart of gold, amazing ministry. She's been with Gerald for 30 years. And she, you know, I always tease Sherry because... She had the biggest office in the church, bigger than Pastor Gerald's, bigger than anybody. She handles all the finances, and she's the big baller around there, really. You don't mess with her. She signs the paychecks. 
and, and she just is, just has an amazing ministry for counseling and loving. And one thing about Sherry, I always tease her, is you, you walk in a room, and, and you're not crying, but you're not walking out, and you're crying. You walk out with tissue, and you're bawling, because it's just, you sit down in her chair for five minutes, and you come out crying, because by the time you're done talking to her, you're, you're positive of one thing, and that is that she loves you, and that she, she cares about you. And because she cares about you and loves you, it just hits that chord in your heart and you just cry because she, she loves you. And she can communicate in counseling that, that she loves you and cares about you first. And so she was somebody whose opinion was super valuable to us. And, and again, God, God spoke to her. She said, man, I have such a peace about it. I know it's God. I know God's in it. We're going to hate to see you guys go. We're, we're heartbroken, but we feel good about it. We feel the Lord. Um, in that and that was that was true across the board people that loved me and loved Lydia and loved Jesus and and God spoke through them it's a part of being in fellowship the Bible says do not forsake the gathering of the brethren together and that's probably the area where we as a church are the most disobedient we as a Christian people are the most disobedient church becomes something that we do um, recreationally and and yet do you have to go to church to be a Christian argument comes up no, you don't. But if you're a Christian, you should want to go to church. And there's something wrong if you're a Christian and you don't want to go to church. But there, there's a function of the church, why the Bible says that we shouldn't forsake the gathering of the brethren. And listen, it's not for me. It's not for the church. It's for the body. It's for you. It's, it's something happens, right, among each other. And as God spoke through the 12 tribes of Israel and he, the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes that God speaks through, God speaks to you through people that love you and love Jesus. And that happens in church. That happens in the function of the local church as we fellowship together, a way that you don't miss God's will, a way that God speaks to you, right? All right, we better move on if we're going to finish. All right, verse 31, uh, we, we continue with more of the priestly garments. I'm not going to get into them. I just want to kind of highlight this little deal. Look at verse 33. It says, And upon the hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet. We get those three colors again. And all around its hem bells of gold between them all. So two ideas here. The hem, talk about that, and then the bells. Talk about the bells first because it's simple, and then we'll talk about the hem, the hem for a minute. So we, you have the hem of the garment, garment is there at the bottom. You see that little, those things that are on the bottom. You can't, actually, could maybe pick it up. You could see it a little better. No, that's it. Um, but it was, it was a big deal among the garment, this hem. And, and the, um, the Pharisees would have a certain amount of hems and balls and things that would fall off. The second thing was that they were to be adorned with bells. And it's going to go on and say that, you know, in verse 35, shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sounds will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. Now from that, you guys have heard me say it before, that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that when he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the sins of the people, if he wasn't right in his own heart when he went in, he would fall over dead. Those bells wouldn't be ringing. And then we could pull him out. Otherwise, if I go in after him to pull him out, I got no business in there. I haven't been invited in there at this point in history. And I'm going to fall over dead. for, for And then the, bo the bodies are just going to start piling up in the Holy of Holies. So, But... The Bible doesn't tell us that. That's tradition. I don't know if it's true or not necessarily. It's always good a sermon illustration, but um, it, 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 we don't get that necessarily from the Bible. Now, the bells, that's biblical. The Bible tells us that, that Aaron, the high priest, would have worn bells um, around their the hem of their, garden, their garments. Um, and then I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time, but just again with the hem. When you think of the hem of a garment, I think of so, several places. Number one, Isaiah chapter 6. What happened in Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year that, I, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and Isaiah has this experience with the Lord, and his, his reaction is, Woe is me. And that's always the reaction when we see the Lord. The same reaction that Peter had. Woe is me, Lord. I am unclean. I am unworthy. But in that picture in Isaiah 6, it says that Isaiah saw the train of the Lord, or the hem of his garment, or the swoosh that would have passed as the Lord passed by. You remember the woman who had an issue of blood in, in the New Testament? What did she say about Jesus? She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be made well. 
And so it, it was a big deal, this idea of the hem of the garment and that, that God laid it out, that, that it was meant to be a part of the priestly garment. And, and traditionally and historically, it was, it was a big deal to the Jews. And, and this idea of the hem of the garment, the hem of God's robe, the train of God's robe. This woman just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. One more, do you remember King David? Remember King David was, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. And he was chasing King David and King David snuck up behind him when he was relieving himself. And what did King David do to him? Kicked out his feet so he fell over on top of his stuff. No, um, that's gross. Um, no, David snuck in and he cut off what part of Saul's garment? The hem, a piece of the hem. And, and you and I read the next part where David is just heartbroken about it. But it, it, to, to him, it was, it, was, it was more because it speaks of authority. And the, and the hem of the garment um, to, to a Jew, to a priest, to Jesus, there was something in the hem that speaks of the authority. And everywhere we see authority, we see that reference to the hem of a garment. And so David, in essence, he cut off a piece of Saul's authority. And that's what he was trying not to do. That's what King David had committed himself not to do, was to allow God to give him that authority. He could have killed um, Saul in that cave. And his men were pretty mad that David didn't kill Saul. But rather than kill him and take all the authority, David just cut a piece of his hem, which represented authority, and took a piece of his authority. Later, David was convicted and repented and felt bad for it. But it, it's a representative. And then it goes on, and I love verse 36. You shall also make a plate pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness unto the Lord. I have a little uh, uh, note in my Bible here. Luke um, 2002. My Luke, born in 2002. One of the things that, that we did for all the kids, for Luke, Nathan, Caleb, and Gabrielle, um, and they all were these things, but this particular one, I don't know why, where, how, but God just spoke to me before Luke was born that this was how we were to dedicate him was with this little phrase, holiness unto the Lord. And, and holiness is, is what? We talk, we talk about often what holy means. Holiness or holy means, come on y'all, holy means what? Separated, set apart. That's what it means to be holy or holiness is that we're set apart unto the Lord. We're in this world, but not of this world. We're set apart. We, holiness is removing ourselves, setting us apart from the world, being set apart unto God. And yeah, we don't get involved in the things that the world does and these sins and these behaviors because we're holy. We're set apart ones. And so that was, that was the call. I have a little onesie and I had embroidered on it, holiness unto the Lord and, and Luke's name. And, uh, and I have took a picture of it and we just did one for Gabrielle and had one for Nathan. Each had their own saying that, that God gave us that was special for each one of them. But the comes from the high priest. And again, we are, according to the New Testament, we are kings and priests. So cool. So cool that all this, you guys got, you guys can wear one of those. You guys probably got that on your pajamas you're going to go and put on tonight, huh? You're like, yeah, hurry up so I can go get in them. It's cold outside. Um, but, but yeah, that, that, that whole adornment, God has adorned you that way in the spirit. God has given you those jewels and you wear that breastplate and God has called you and that this big deal that he made in the Old Testament of the tabernacle and the priests and yet in the New Testament he calls us a kingdom of priests and, and according to and, and, and able to be a good priest or a king unto the Lord, a New Testament priest, we have to be holy. Holiness unto the Lord. Separated unto the Lord. So important. Holiness when serving. Verse 41, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother and his sons with him. You shall anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them and the minister, as they minister, that they may minister to the priest. So later, really quickly, Aaron and his sons were called. Aaron had two sons that were wicked, Adab and Abihu. And, and they, they, they just have a terrible history, Adab and Abihu. Um, they, they, they end up getting drunk as they're serving. And the Bible says, don't get drunk as you do these things, as you serve unto the Lord. Don't do it with drunkenness. The Apostle Paul, when he's dealing in the New Testament with the Corinthians, they were having communion and agape feasts, and they were doing it with real alcohol and getting drunk in the process of their church services. And Paul comes in and deals very sternly with the Corinthians for, for this behavior. And God deals with it here in the Old Testament. And, he, and specifically, I guess, because he knew that, that Adab, Nadab and Abihu were going to go on and be, 
be problems. But they got drunk. And then we'll get into it, but it says later, it says that they offered strange fire before the Lord. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, strange fire. But, But these two sons of the priests, they offered strange fire, sons of Aaron. And because of that, God judged them and killed them both. And, and so we'll get we'll see that later. But they're called here, and, and the whole purpose was that they were to be set apart and uh, holy unto the Lord. Well, it's eight thirty. Should we hit twenty nine? Let me just see a couple of the highlights. Uh, let, let's do it. It'll be quick. I'm just going to hit a couple of verses. Um, so. In 29, we have Aaron and his sons con- consecrated in the first part there. And then let's, let's jump down to 29.33. It says, They shall eat those things with the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, to consecrate and sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. So these things that they were to sacrifice. Now, every day they were to sacrifice a bull. They were to sacrifice a, she- a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the night. And, and the, the things that, that the priests... Um, did the show bread it was le- it was legal for the priests to eat it it was their portion they worked every day in the temple that was their job they didn't have farms they didn't go out and, and plant um, crops and corn and wheat and fruit and 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 live off of those things the people brought the offering and the the portion of the priests was a portion of what the people offered to god so 11 tribes lived normal lives and had industry and had work. And one tribe, the Levite tribe, didn't do any of that stuff. They stayed close to the tabernacle and tended to all of these deeds and all of these things. And so they were allowed to eat these things, but the, the average people weren't. Now, you guys remember David, remember King David? And he went in and the Bible says that he ate the showbread that was not lawful for the, for the people to eat. Well, this is the showbread that the priests and them were lawful. And then, and then they... Jesus commented on what King David said and basically he said in this area that human need supersedes the law and it was okay what David and his men did because they were starving to death and they were hungry and God's going to feed his people in teaching the Pharisees who were upset because Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and he said you hypocrites if your donkey on the Sabbath falls in a ditch how many of you will pull it out and yet you're mad because I healed a human I healed someone on the Sabbath you hypocrites and so it goes on and it says, um, talked about those. The last part, the daily offerings, again, were, were the things that, that they would offer. Verse 42 says, And it shall be continual burnt offerings throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meetings in the altar. And I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. So what was cool is the way this whole thing was set up. You know, there was part of the consecration that they were to burn and it was going to go up to God. They were to burn the fat. And then basically they would barbecue. God was totally into barbecue. I'm serious. Like he loved it. He, would, he, he demanded that they barbecued beef and lamb every day. And they had to eat it, and they had to eat it all. And he said, anything that's left over for tomorrow, you have to throw it out. It's no good. It's for today. And we know what that speaks of. We know of the fact that it's the daily bread. The stuff we do for today is for today. And tomorrow we got to get up and do it again. And um, seek the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't give us this week our weekly bread. Don't give us this month our monthly bread. It's not what the Word of God says. Give us this day our daily bread. We're in the Word every day we're seeking. But God loved these barbecues. And they would have these big barbecues and the priest would eat. And God would, part of it, the fat, God would take care of that. So he took care of the unhealthy part and ate all the fat and they ate all the meat. And But it was what it speaks of, again, if if earth is, is a picture and God's will on earth being done on earth as it is in heaven in heaven we see the fulfillment of it what are we going to do with the lord in heaven in the area of meals and eating well what's going to happen in heaven we're gonna have this big huge what supper of the lamb right marriage supper of the lamb we have this big huge wedding and we're going to dine with him and that's what the bible says and fulfilled in that these daily feasts where god would show up and have daily feasts where he would dine with his people as god with us amen amen hey can we close in one song yay nay we could have at 725 or 825, not 835. You could turn that off, Chad.
Hey, so I'm going to invite you guys one song. Um, we we want to receive communion tonight. I think we're we're past, we're long overdue, and so uh, would like to give you guys an opportunity to uh, get your lives, get your hearts right with the Lord tonight. We get one song. As you guys know, the Lord the Lord um, instructs multiple things, but but on the skinny that. Number one, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so it's something that we remember Jesus as we receive communion. We honor him. We thank him. The, the, the bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. And Isaiah says that by his stripes we are healed, both now and for eternity. And sometimes we receive a healing today for our flesh and for things in our lives that need healed. And ultimately, for, for those of us that have faith in Jesus, we ultimately receive our healing when we breathe our last and we receive our new glorified body that will last all of eternity and will be healed. And if you're in a wheelchair, you will run again. And if you're blind, you will see again. And you will receive a healing through all of eternity. And the, the body of Jesus Christ was broken for us for that reason. And, and the blood represents, obviously, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we take the bread first, and, and, we, and then we take the cup. The bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us. And then Jesus said, whenever you do this, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And I always just try to remember and take time to thank and praise and remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And then he said, Paul tells the Corinthians, who I, I just mentioned briefly, who were messing this whole thing up. And he, Paul came in and he taught the Corinthian church the right way to take communion. And what Paul said in giving commentary on communion is that it should be a time where we examine our hearts. And so it's always a time when we take communion to get our lives and our hearts right with the Lord. And it just takes one song. It takes a simple prayer of repentance, of seeking God's face, allowing God to speak to you. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's sin. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's not a sin of commission and you're not smoking crack and shooting heroin and have sin like that. But maybe God's called you to step out. Maybe God told you to go and share the gospel with your neighbor and you're being disobedient. That's a sin of omission and you haven't done what God's called you to do. But maybe there's just something subtle. Maybe there's something that God has been already speaking to your heart and you know what it is. God's already been speaking it to you. And tonight is, is an opportunity and a time to get that right, to commit that to the Lord, to start doing what it is that God's called you to do, to stop doing what it is God's called you to stop doing. And so thank him. And then get out that mirror. You got one song to get all this done. Get out that mirror and look in that mirror and say, God, what, what is it about me that you want to change? What is it about me that you want to fix? What is it about me that you want to heal and allow God to work in your, in your life? Amen? Amen. Come on up, you guys. Take it back to your seat and spend a song with the Lord.